we don't like working with big charities or charities that don't need us because we like being on a journey with someone that's, you know, like really passionate about what they do and helping and saving the world. My name is Felix Tia, and I'm the host of Shopify Masters, a weekly podcast powered by Shopify, the easiest way to sell online, in-person, and anywhere in between. Each week, we invite entrepreneurs like you to share what they've learned growing successful e-commerce businesses. In this episode, you'll learn how to vet charities before partnering with them, why this business aims for 60% margin on their products, and how to determine if a content creator is a good fit for your brand. Before our show, I wanted to chat about the Storefront Signage Maker. It's an easy way for any brick-and-mortar shop owner to let your customers know that you are open, available for curbside pickup, delivery, online information, and more. Customize any message you like, automatically create a QR code for your store, then print it off from home. It's easy and simple to use, no design experience required. Create a sign yourself at shopify.com signage. Today, I'm joined by Paul Forkan from Gandy's International, which is a sustainable outdoor travel clothing brand that gives back to underprivileged children by building kids' campuses all around the world. And was started in 2012 based out of South London. Welcome, Paul. Hi, Felix. Nice to be on your show. Yeah, so the idea behind the business was really born out of a tragedy. Can you share more of your story with us? Yeah, so um, me and my brother, Rob, we were pulled out of school at a young age. I was 11 and he was 13. And... Um, well, we we actually went to um, India on holiday at Christmas and we came back and our parents asked us and our other siblings, there's six of us all together, they asked us, how, how did we find our holiday? And we said, oh, it was amazing, a real eye-opener, one of the best holidays we'd ever been on. The culture in India is so vast and um, the people are so friendly. It's just a sort of a magical place. And uh, we went back to school after our holiday and that. And then our parents said, um, we're going to reduce the price of our house. The house is currently being sold and they reduced it. And then within a few weeks, uh, they said, pack your bags, we're moving to India. And then I went into school and told my teacher, I uh, said, miss, I'm moving to India at the end of the week. Uh, and this is, this is like 20 odd years ago, 22 years ago. Um, she thought I was joking. And then it got to the end of the week and I had my shirt all signed with signatures um, and it was the, the last day and she said what have you done to your shirt I said oh it's my last day today miss I'm going to India tomorrow and she, she thought I was joking so she rung up my mother and she said yeah did he not tell you and then that was that and then uh, we sort of packed one bag we stopped off in Jordan uh, travelled around a bit of the Middle East um, and then it, we were going to go for like six months and it ended up being four four years four and a half years of sort of living like hippies and travelling all around and um whilst we were traveling um we sort of did volunteering work went and visited um mosques temples and kind of various other, other things and they homeschooled us for a bit we went to school for six months um, and we kind of had this sort of free spirited life living on a beach just traveling around my dad had a lonely planet book and he'd read places out and we'd say oh yeah that sounds good let's go there and then unfortunately 2004 came and we were in South India and he said about how do you fancy going to Sri Lanka and um, me and my brother even to this day we love going to new countries and sort of ticking them off going having a look and experience their culture and we went over to Sri Lanka and we traveled down um, and a, a few days in we then settled somewhere and it was Christmas 
And the next day, our life was turned upside down. Um, we were caught up in the Boxing Day tsunami. And I was quite lucky that my brother sort of grabbed my arm and helped get me up, wake me up. I'm not a morning person. So he kind of saved my life. And my mum and dad um, put my little brother and sister on, on their shoulders and got them out of, of their room and basically sacrificed their life. And unfortunately, um, my parents didn't make, our parents didn't make it. And uh, we sort of, I was 15 and um, had a little younger brother and sister with us at the time. They were at 11 and uh, 7. And we sort of had no money or food and the trains were down because they run along the coast. The petrol short petrol stations were wiped out and we had to hitchhike all the way back up to Colombo, the capital, um, and get to the embassy and had to, our siblings needed to be sort of stitched up and stuff. And we got them back um, to London and our older sister basically adopted us. And the reason why we started Gandhi's was because we love traveling. We were brought up traveling and um, we did all this volunteering and we wanted to give something back to the people that helped us in Sri Lanka. Um, and since starting Gandhi's, we've built our kids' campuses around the world and we built one for the 10-year anniversary of the tsunami um, in honour of our parents and the 235,000 people that also lost their lives in it. Mm. Thank you for sharing that story with us. I think um, certainly, obviously, a very inspiring kind of turn, right? Where you you took this experience of yours and you reckon and you took this 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 desire of your life to to travel and still be part of the the kind of world community and found ways to give back. At the time when you thought about how can I give back, how can I contribute back. What, what did you think this would look like? What did you think that did you did you plan out that it would be these campuses? Like, how did you foresee what 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 way you'd be giving back? We we love traveling, and um, we sort of we would always do help volunteering stuff even after the tsunami. But what we always used to find the problem would be would we would go to a place, we would help for a few weeks or a month volunteering. We would then go back to work and then we'd be like, we'd feel so bad and guilty that we're then back at work in like, I was in Australia, uh, living over there. And, um, even my brother, he'd come back to London to work and we thought, what could we do? We need to leave a legacy and leave saying one of our parents. And we thought by doing these kids campuses in sort of the developing world as well, our money goes a lot further and they need the money the most and the help the most. So that's why we kind of chose doing our work there. Can you, can you tell us more about what the kids' campus is? What, what's uh, what, what's entailed? What is exactly the, the experience of someone that would would be a part of this kids' campus? So they're they're heavily focused more around preschool, and every every campus is slightly different as well. Some are so we've got one in Rio in Brazil that's in the favelas, and they all have their different problems that we're working towards to help them. So the one in Rio is near lo- loads of gangs and stuff. So we're trying to break the cycle of. Making the giving the children education so they don't end up going into that cycle. Our project in Malawi is in a rural place in Africa, and that's probably one of our, our poorest projects in, in the sense of people really struggle for food and that. And then our Sri Lanka one is in a rural space, but they're a lot they're a bit more developed than Malawi. But the main focus is to get their preschool and get them up to speed so that when they 
go to the, the bigger school, they don't feel like they're behind with other students that more help from their parents and that. So we want to try and just teach them like the basics and that. Otherwise, if a kid start feels like they're starting school two years behind the other kids, they're more likely to go on and not do well. And then the campuses are sort of used as well, not just for school, but for sports and like a safe like community place for the children to go. And they have like IT uh, labs as well. So they can um, go there and um, learn about IT um, the sports and stuff's great as well because it keeps it gives them a, a place to go and not hang out on the street and end up uh, going down a bad path. And then we have like partnerships where some of the older kids at some of the campuses will also we will help them with getting into university, uh, getting a job, and so we have like partnerships, like corporate partners and stuff. So it's kind of like a um, thing that um, we do to sort of just help the whole community as a whole, basically. Yeah, it's it's a it's a whole other organization. You know, we haven't even we didn't even really dive into the the business that powers a lot of this, but the organization of running these kids camps is all throughout the world. Lots of logistics expertise. It sounds like it requires to start a campus like this. How do you even start one? Like you decided maybe for your first one or any new ones that you're opening these days. How do you even begin to to set up a, a campus? So I'm quite lucky. We now have a big setup around us but when we started we started small so when i was sleeping on my brother's sofa and we had no one working for us the first few months we were like um our goal was to always build a kids campus but it took us a couple of years to sort of get the money and to to learn but with our first project it was basically funded a nurse and a, a teacher uh for a few years and then um we basically just did small bits like that and then um, we came across a, a project as well that was basically on the verge of sort of coming to an end. And it was already a school that was existing and they just had no money coming in. They couldn't afford to turn the lights on. And we basically um, helped fund them a few years. And whilst doing that, we were learning how they operate. And that then helped us But when we built our campus with making sure loads of stuff that we saw and we try and get our projects to be as sustainable as possible. Our one in Malawi has a food program so that the children can learn about farming and harvesting. And we also then don't have less money to run them. Um, and that, that comes down to the electricity, everything. So we kind of, we try and be as efficient as well as possible and having partners and stuff helps as well. Where are all the locations of all those campuses? So we've got one in Sri Lanka, which was our first one. Um, and then we've got one in Malawi in Africa and then one in Mongolia. That's uh, going to be, it was meant to be finished in November, but due to the pandemic, that's going to be hopefully now April, March time. And then um, we've got one in Rio that opened this year in March. And, and we've got, and we've got one in Nepal as well. Okay. How do you manage all this from from a distance from all these campuses spread throughout the world? How do you make sure that you have a good kind of grasp of what's going on in all these places? I have a lot of WhatsApp groups. <laughs> I'm on the phone to them every every few days, each project. We're always getting videos, pictures, updates and stuff around them. And some of them, we've been it's been a strange year for, for us. We'd normally be helping all the children, but this year we've been helping the families because they've not been able to go to work. And there's here in the UK, we're very lucky. There's a furlough scheme. The government's been very good at handing money out. Whereas over there, the 
governments don't have the money to hand out. So, but they have lockdowns. So people have been struggling for food. So um, our kids' campuses have kind of turned into, we fed like uh, tens of thousands of people throughout the pandemic in Brazil, Nepal, and Sri Lanka. We've kind of, yeah, we've, they've kind of changed how they were operating. And um, some of them, have, uh, have sort of, they've opened back up now. Um, and we, we're hoping that they now stay open because it's so important for the, the children um, to, be, to be going in and like physically be in, be in there in the, in the kids' campus. Are there a lot of like legal or or governmental like bureaucracy that's involved in setting up a campus? And when you go into a decide where you want to open one next, like how is the government involved? Yeah, so we don't physically open them ourselves. We use a small charity on the ground who is already registered in the country because of the red tape. Uh, if we were to turn mm-hmm. up there, we would um, some countries they would charge us an arm and a leg. Uh, to to do stuff, um, and we would get we would sort of get we would get caught out on a few bits. Um, whereas someone that's been there years knows knows it off the back of their hand, and all of every country has different rules and regulations, and we we want to piggyback off their expertise and their network as well. So we um, will go to them and um, speak to a few charities in the in the country or even in the continent and whichever one we we have like a few um, things around the criteria of the projects. Um, And some of them we've like a big one for me and my brother, Rob is making sure that the project's going to still be running in 20 years time. We don't want to just open a project up um, and then in a couple of years because it's not run uh, properly or, you know, like um, so we're quite, on all of that and the charities and stuff who we work with are all vetted and we do like thorough checks on them as well and our trustee will go out and visit once once a year at least and so will me and my brother yeah i think i think lots of listeners out there might also want to find ways to incorporate and a way to give back from from their business so at a kind of a a, a smaller scale when if they are also looking to choose to work with a charity to help fund and partner with like you or to get to maybe a smaller scale smaller smaller degree how do you determine whether a charity is a good fit or one that you would want to work with what you mentioned one the criteria around longevity and whether it's going to be run well how do you how do you i guess how do you uh, vet that when you're especially when you're someone that's never done this before how do you vet that a charity is a good good choice um, well, we, there's, there's a few of us that make the decision. Um, we get them to, to do a pack for us. Um, we aim to meet them a few times, um, and speak to their trustees and, uh, people that have worked with them over the years. So it's kind of like, you know, like if someone's looking for a job, you get a reference on them and you see that they sort of work somewhere a few years sort of thing. And it's the same with the charities. You know, we need to make sure they haven't just popped up in the last 12 months. And we also like to, another thing that's quite big for us as well is making, we don't, we don't like working with um, big charities or charities that don't need us because we like being on a journey with someone that's, you know, like really passionate about what they do and helping and saving the world. Um, and so a charity that really needs us. And we know that every penny that we give them will go into their cause and go to helping people. 
Got it. And if someone wants to go down the same path as you, can you give us an idea of the resources or capital needed to, like, I guess, how expensive is it to run a, a, something like a kids campus or any kind of campus at a small scale or, you know, to, to the scales, to the degree that you built these days? Yeah. So uh, Africa would probably be a lot cheaper than some of the other places. Um, like Sri Lanka, the land can be quite really expensive. So if you were starting on a small scale, and Africa's very needy as well, uh, yeah, it depends where where as well. Um, but you could probably you could look at doing something really like really really tiny, um, and and it depends if you get volunteers to run it as well. We have teachers that run them, but you could you could start off with with, with building a really really tiny like small classroom um for around sort of twenty five thousand thirty thousand pounds um but then if you, it depends if you want to make it bigger like um yeah and you can go all the way up to 150 you could go up to more but um you 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 got to around a couple of hundred thousand pound mark um and yeah rio is quite expensive is like an annual cost or like just the initial like start like startup? That would be the initial sort of startup um, cost. And then um, annually, um, it depends how many teachers you have, the food, medication. Um, then you could you could spend around like 30,000, 40,000 pounds per one running, running it as well. Got it. Now let's talk about how does the business that the Gandhi's International Fund, the, the development, the, the running, the management of these campuses. Uh, and to take it all the way back to the beginning, when you knew that you wanted to start something like this, a campus or some idea around starting a campus for kids, how did you decide what kind of products, what kind of business to start to to fund this 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 endeavor? Um, so we, we started off with flip-flops um, and um, we was selling them on, on our website and through department stores across Australia, Thailand, literally everywhere, Europe, Germany, the UK. Um, and we thought the reason why we started with flip-flops was we used to live in flip-flops as children. And we thought, what's the universal product that everyone can afford um, and help solve a universal problem of making sure everyone has an education. Um, so that's why we chose uh, flip-flops. But then... I don't know if you've been to the UK, Felix, but you only get two weeks of summer a year. So we kind of stopped making uh, uh, flip-flops and we kind of branched out into jackets and bags and we've kind of now become a full lifestyle brand, basically. God. Okay, so I think this is a good lesson learned here. Um, but first thing, how did you you start with flip flops? I'm not sure what the, the experience or connections or 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 your background. But how did you get into these retailers internationally? Like, because you mentioned Australia and basically a bunch of different places besides the UK. How did you get into these retailers? I went to trade shows, um, looked for buyers on LinkedIn. Um, and buying directors and CEOs and stuff, um, and got distributors as well. Um, but if I was starting a business now, I would, that's still so old fashioned. Like the, the future is doing it on Shopify and reaching the customer yourself and owning the customer. 
as opposed to using a, a, a third party. Mm. And so you, you recognize that there was difficulty, there wasn't a good kind of fit between the product and, and, and the actual, the, the need, right? There, in, at least in, uh, in the UK, there wasn't a fit. Uh, what, how long did, you, did it take for you to realize, okay, we should probably pivot and, and have a different, different products in our catalog? Um, it was about two and a half years. And during that time was just like losing money or how did you, what, what, what made you make that kind of leap to say, okay, it's time for us to switch it up. We, we had, we were literally selling, like we sold a few hundred thousand pairs. And, um, we thought it, the, the, uh, when doing that, it would just kick off from like, then go, um, it kind of didn't. Um, and the reason, the reason why we were looking at it, the flip-flop shape, the, the flip-flops that we were making were um, like the, the, the kind of the, they were really good quality, but they were the the ones that you don't spend loads of money on, the sort of the basic rubber style. And by the time you use a distributor and then a um, department store takes more money as well, who takes, they take the most money. And then we didn't, manu- we used a, a, a factory that makes loads of uh, big cor- corporates. So we were in that, a factory there. So by the time everyone took their money for being involved in the process of our flip-flops, um, we were like, oh, there's not actually much money left for ourselves after all of the hard work, the marketing. Uh, we had literally so many celebs. Richard Branson, this is when One Direction was big. They were all in our flip-flops. Um, uh, Royals, literally. Um, yeah, We had like Kate, Kate Middleton, Prince William, um, Richard Branson was uh, giving them to everyone who stayed on his island and he was wearing them. Um, and uh, yeah, we were looking at it and we were going, okay, we need to look at our business model. Um, and I'm glad we did because um, as as you've seen, I know the pandemic's sped up a collapse of the high street, but the, the, future, the future is um, online and that's, uh, for the last sort of three or four years, that's what we've been working towards. Mm. So it sounds like two two key lessons here. One was around how you got your products to your customers, where right? you mentioned going from retail high street to selling online direct to consumers. Uh, but then you know, also something around like this idea of selling a product that's a low price point and low margin, it sounds like product. What was the lesson around that one specifically around how to find either model or a, a business model or a price point that works with your business? Yeah. So um, now, like for example, we're bringing flip-flops uh, back this year and we have like a rule that we we like to aim for a, a 60% margin um, on, on our products. Um, and that that's what, there's, uh, we're not the first retailer aiming for that, but um, every every retailer will have what they aim to, to make on their products. Um, and by not, by not using um, any um, like department store or retailer, we can do the 60% and our stuff's still priced really competitive, really good. And we can undercut loads of our competitors. Um, and that's kind of whenever we're making a product, we always look at, um, can we under, can we undercut our competitor with a better product at a better price? 
Yeah, that, that's, that's certainly, if you can answer yes to that, that's certainly a huge advantage. How do you even, how, how do you even make adjustments or how do you say, how do you answer yes to that question about how do you, how, how can you, or can you undercut your competitors with a better product? What changes can you focus on to, to, to make sure that you are ticking both of those boxes that you can charge less, but then also offer superior product? Well, it comes back to um, loads of competitors out there making outdoor um, apparel. Um, I don't want to name drop any, but um, loads of the big ones that you see people wearing every day, they sell in department stores or in other retailers. So they have to put their price up um, so that they both make uh, good money margin on, on their products and just by us only doing online, we don't have to pay any rent as well. So we don't have to pay any rent to any landlords and we, we don't have a, a, a partner um, who's after margin for themselves. So it's quite, it makes it quite easy to undercut them with a better, with a better product. That makes sense. So easy to undercut them. But tell us, tell, tell us about the, the product development process. How do you make sure that you are creating a superior product? What what goes into choosing? You mentioned coming back into flip-flops, but then since then you've self mentioned jackets and bags. Like what, it, what? How do you decide to, or once you make a decision on what to focus on next, what kind of product to offer next, what goes into the development process? So um, me and my brother are very, very, very involved in the product. Um, and we both love design. So we, we have a signature map print that uh, we put inside the lining and on our products. So it's quite important um, about if you, if you look at some of our products, you, you, if you cover our logo, you know that it's from us because it's got like our signature sort of pieces cut. We, we have a, um, our own Pantone, like our own colors that, as well that we use and we kind of stick to them. We don't sort of use loads of colors. Um, and all of our stuff, we have like lo- loads of things that when we're designing saying it has to be uh, timeless. So you could get it back out the wardrobe in five years time and it doesn't feel like it's dated. Um, and it needs to sort of be hard wearing, like long lasting. Um, we have to, we're not a hundred percent sustainable. We try and make everything we can with uh, a sustainable mind. Um, and do stuff so we don't we don't use feathers from live animals because we think that's wrong. Even though companies say it's ethically sourced from them, I, to take a feather off an animal is not ethically uh, it's not ethical in any way whatsoever. You should not buy a jacket with it because um, I know I speak to our suppliers and our suppliers say, yeah, they're getting these certificates that they're uh, from somewhere ethical, but they're like it's not. We've been to pick it, the feathers up, and uh, where they're coming from is not ethical. So we're quite really like always looking into that using um like using fabric where stuff's made from recycled plastic plastic bottles and consumers kind of especially younger consumers are that's what they're sort of only buying like just trying to buy to, to that all our products they have to be distinctive desirable um and different as well to, to our competitors so we um we're making jackets and stuff so we're all making the same stuff we haven't reinvented the wheel but um we always make sure it's distinctive desirable and defendable as well so that no we make it so good that, uh and like the best no one can make a jacket or, or some of our our rucksacks and that better than what we do 
Mm. So one thing I heard in there was that, that a lot of your differentiation that is this uniqueness that this design you mentioned that they covered up your your logo. People would still recognize it as a Gandhi's product. How do you how do you test or do you test uh, designs out before manufacturing? Do you do you test it with uh, with existing customers or prospective customers? How do you make sure that is a design that's going to um, be desired before before launching? Yeah. So. Um me and my brother and loads of people on product would I would test stuff, um, and then um, if something's re- if it's saying that um, we did like a polar jacket this year, some we on that it, it flew out and sold out, but we bought a smaller mountain, and um, we bought a smaller mountain, and um, uh, we saw that it got a good read, and then we backed it with even more, so we're kind of. We'll we'll dip our toes, and anyone starting out, I think it's really important um, to start off small. Um, we we when we started, we did some stuff where we were like, oh my god, we've ordered so much uh, stock, too much stock. So it's important to just you know do stuff slowly and take your time and uh, grow grow organically and don't over sort of stretch or push yourself. Hey. Real quick, if you're enjoying the show, please leave us a review on iTunes. Let us know what you think or what you'd like to hear more of. Now, let's get back to the interview. Makes sense. So now when you decided to make this pivot uh, online, right, rather than going through retailers, what was that that transition like? When we, 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 we started off selling directly to um, consumers, but we whilst doing that, we also we're getting ourselves stocked in retailers as well. So it wasn't new, but, um, so, uh, yeah, ever since the start, it was, um, it's quite cool. Um, you get a relationship with the customer. Whereas, um, if you do it the other way, you don't get a relationship. You don't, the customers just picks it up when they're in that store or on that other person's website. Um, so it's quite cool. Um, being able to email them and you can do the, notify as well on the internet um on on google and stuff um but it just feels like with social media it just feels like you have a like a constant relationship um and like it's, it's quite amazing like how you can do a an insta story of a product and then it's just completely sold out Mm. Got it. Okay, so now once you fully made the transition online without any retailers, what were you doing to to drive attention and awareness uh, to 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 the website to the brand? So uh, we work with a lot of content creators um, around the world because it's hard for us to sort of go visit all of these amazing places, national parks, tourist hotspots. Um, so some of these content creators will have hundreds of thousands, sometimes a few million uh, followers. And um, we would basically want them to produce us with some high quality content that we can use to our community. And whilst um, we use it to our community, um, they would also post it to, to their community and that helps bring people through, through the door um, onto our website. And um, that's where our traffic mm. comes from. Okay, got it. So working with content creators, almost like some some sort of influencer marketing. How do you find? How do you how do you decide or or, or decide on whether a content creator is going to be a good fit or not for uh for, for for your brand? If you look at their wall, normally you can 
um, if their style um, is kind of what we're, we're ours is quite a wanderlust earthy vibe. We kind of if they tick the boxes of that and what we're after, um, then we know that they'll they'll work for us. And sometimes they're not always. It's not about sales. Sometimes sometimes you'll use some. They might have a few hundred thousand followers and you don't get you don't get many sales from from it. Um, but you get some really good um, content um, that then uh, is good for us and we then sell to our community. So, um, it's, yeah, it's not always about about mm. the sales because I've, I've spoken to people who have started out and they think that if they get a few Instagrammers with a million followers, it's just going to send their website crazy and it's going to crash and they're going to make loads of big sales. Um, so you kind of, you have to just kind of uh, do as, as many as possible and um, kind of take your time and not not think about the sales. The sales will come later. Yeah, I think that's a good point about how sometimes you if, you, if you don't get the sale, the content is still valuable in itself. Now, through the years of experience and, and you've done this a bunch of times with different content creators, is there a way to to determine or to at least have a better feel for whether a content creator is going to lead to to sales? Yeah. yeah. Um, so you, you, you can look at like their audience who's commenting and stuff. If you can get really granular. Um, and, um, we get ones that work well for us, uh, American and the Canadians, um, and then the, 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 the British, German, I, Irish, um, do well. Um, but South America ones, for example, don't do well. Some of the ones in Asia for us don't do well. Um, and, and so, some of that is because, um, they, they can get products, um, cheaper with less they have high taxes in some of these countries so it's super important to um whereas it's super important like we use mainly uk ones because it's cheaper for us to also post to that post uh the products out to them with no um import duty tax and mostly normally uh, most of their followers are uh, with all the influencers are normally in their own country first so um, by using uh, British ones, um, it helps because uh, we know that we can deliver it to them basically for free, like next day. Oh, so you're looking at the, the basically the, the location, the geographic location of the audience of these influencers and content creators. Now, do you just do you just determine that based on on the location of the the content creator, or or are there tools that you can use to determine that you know eight percent of their followers are in North America or in the UK? Is there is there any way for you to determine that um, through any kind of data? Yeah, um, I'm not sure what. Um, my social media guys use, but when I used to do it, we used to do it. There was stuff, uh, tools out there, but we never thought it was worth, some of them were, pe- were charging like, I think it was 500 pound a month. And I just found it easier to, um, you could, you could pretty much tell, um, from all of the comments and stuff mm, on their wall. The language or. Yeah. And you also, you get a lot, you get a lot of, uh, influencers as well where they have a, um, poor engagement, and that's sometimes because they they bought loads of uh, followers that aren't real. So it's important to sort of check check all of that, um, and you can see if they're getting good good engagement regularly. 
we we did stuff um, as well. Uh, we were use, using um, people uh, who took amazing pictures of landscapes, um, and then they we would gift them product. They they would be based in the UK as well, for example. But when they do their pictures, they would uh, you wouldn't really see our product. You wouldn't know because they're so far away um, in the landscape. So then. There's no, there's no point gifting them, even though you've got lovely content for ourselves. There's kind of like a balancing act um, as well, you know, like because um, you need, uh, you need to be sustainable. You can't just gift everyone if you're starting out. Because um, I, I know some people that are starting out, um, and they can't, they can't really afford. To, they, and some people have a high price point uh, product. So it's, uh, if it's like jewelry or something, and you're starting a jewelry business, you can't. That makes it really hard to to, to, um, to do because you can't really gift them the product. Makes sense. And you yeah, mentioned that there's lots of value in the content itself, not just the exposure that you get through the, the content creators, followers. What do you do with the, the content that, that the photos and the, the maybe videos that they produce for you? Um, so we would, we would then use it on our social media. Um, sometimes it could be turned into adverts as well. So it kind of, it gives us it gives us creative assets um, that helps us uh, bring people um, onto our site. Got it. And and how many are you usually working with with at with at a time these these content creators? At the minute, uh, we probably have about fifty a month that are uh, producing stuff for us. God, it makes sense. And you had mentioned to us too about these celebrity endorsements that you've been able to get. And one thing you had told us in in the the pre-interview was around how there's this attitude that the sky's the limit with how far you can take the brand and the ethos, particularly again around these celebrity endorsements. You mentioned Richard Branson, One Direction, um, the the Duke and the Duchess wearing uh, your your beanies. How does this even happen? How do you even get in front of these these uh, these celebrities to 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 showcase your products? Well, I think I think we're quite lucky because we have um, we have a good product and we have a, a, a good ethos with what we're doing with our kids campuses. So um, some 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 of them um, them celebrities, if you say to them, would you like to wear one of our products? And they're wearing another outdoor brand. They're gonna choose the the one that does does uh, the good and um, also looks good on them. Um, so we're quite lucky in that sense. Uh, but there's, even with that, some of them are still hard to to reach um, and to to get a product on. Um, but I'd say that's that's what's really helped us is having having a mission that they also feel passionate about. Mm. That makes sense. Once you do, if you do have a product like that and it's built into the, the DNA of the product that there's a good story around it, there's a, there's a, a, something that the, that the celebrity also believes in. How do you get in front of them? Is there a, a way that a, a particular out way of outreach that gets you at least in front of these celebrities? Oh, so we've, we've done some wacky stuff, um, to get hold, to get hold of some, We've gone to we've done music festivals where we've had a stand at them and it's been raining the whole weekend. But then you managed to get a celebrity meet a meet a musician, a big musician, and then they've um, come into the brand. And then they've every every six months or something, their stylist will get in touch saying, "Ah, oh, um, so and so is after 
um, some product from you. Um, and yes, uh, we've just man- we've just managed to get out and um, say yes to everything, be it loads of uh, events and stuff. Um, and yeah, we've just been we've been really lucky that me and my brother have pushed pushed ourselves to to do that. Um, and that's kind of helped us. Um, it's led to collaborations. Um, yeah, every every celebrity or influencer or every every little bit of piece of work you're doing with with building um, your web your website or your product your business um, it always leads to something and you have to, you will you will the the first few years was some of our favorite years everything was new and um, we were sort of buzzing um, but uh, it's so so important it's so tough and it's quite scary and um, we just kind of kept going and going and going and yeah each time it led to something else got it so basically uh there's really no no direct or formal path that you took to get in front of these celebrities you mentioned just saying yes me open to to everything and and you know hoping that the pieces you know fall into place so i want to talk a little about that the website can you tell us more about any kind of tools or apps that you use to or that you recommend to to help run your business Clavio, um, we do our email on. That could be a good one for your listeners. Yeah, uh, I'm sorry, I'm just thinking out loud. Whichever ones the ecom guys use, um, I'll, I'll go with, uh, just Clavio for now. These are another one, Stocky, for our stock. Um, so, so yeah, there's there's a few. The good thing about uh, working with um, Shopify is uh, all of these apps out there is endless. Um, Whereas on our old previous website, Magento, there was like hardly any any apps, no apps, um, and um, we use Clavio uh, for our email, which is really good. We used to be on Mailchimp, and moving to Clavio, um, our um, open rates and email conversion has has gone up, uh, which is great. Um, and uh, we use another app. For our stock uh, in, uh, stock management called Stocky, that's uh, really good as well. Awesome. So, Gannysinternational.com is the website. And I'll leave you this last question: What do you think has been the biggest lesson that you've learned in the past year that that you want to apply uh, moving forward? Biggest lesson in the last year? Well, it's been a, it's been a strange year with uh, COVID, but it's kind of taught us, like yourselves as well, um, how you guys are all sort of working remotely. Um, we don't need to be in the office every day and we used to do more photo shoots ourselves, but now we're using more influencers and people around the world. Um, so we're getting sort of paying for these big photo shoots. We're now putting the money towards more people around the world. So we get more, we get more content back than what we would get. So we've kind of learned a new way of operating, which is, is quite cool. And we'll sort of be saying that will now be instilled in us forever. Awesome. Thank you so much for coming on and sharing your experience and story, Paul. Now, thanks as well, Felix. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Shopify Masters, the e-commerce podcast for ambitious entrepreneurs powered by Shopify.